Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. Along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, we have the ethos that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity, because movement is part of what makes your life complete. Moving to Live interviews professionals in the movement field who have a variety of experiences, education, and professional titles. At the end of the day, we all want to move more, and we want our patients, athletes, or clients to move more or move better more efficiently, or move with less pain. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise professions. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. Each Moving to Live interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single listen, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. Before we get to the interview, a quick request. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share the podcast with your friends or anyone who understands that movement is a lifestyle. We appreciate it, and our guests appreciate it too. Welcome back to another edition of the Strength and Conditioning Journal podcast. I often joke on this podcast and my sister podcast that one of the ways I find guests is I lurk on social media and and see what uh, looks cool or what looks interesting. Although I do have to say today's guest I've known for quite a few years. He may not remember this story, but I think uh, the first time I met him in person was I interviewed him for the National Strength and Conditioning Association's Strength and Conditioning Journal podcast for an article that he uh, co-authored on Gaelic hurling. And I think he was a little bit surprised that an American knew what Gaelic hurling was. I'd had the good fortune to interview hurlers in the uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area who were on, who uh, were obviously did Gaelic hurling. I think one of the great things as we chatted before we interviewed or started this recording is we both agreed that social media has some good points and some bad points. And I often say the good thing about social media is there's a lot of information. The bad thing is you have to filter it out. And I think one of the things that today's guest has done a really good job of, at least of what I've seen, the majority of his professional appearance on social media is Twitter. And it's not all look at me, but it's promoting different organizations, uh, positive comments for people who've put out interesting posts, and it's not a negative aspect. Uh, I think he's got an interesting story. I know from talking to him, he spent some time in the US. He spent some time in the sports medicine field. And it seems whenever I talk to him, uh, there's the danger of dropping down the rabbit hole. We are with Chris Bishop. Chris is a senior lecturer in strength and conditioning at the London Sport Institute. Chris, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Thank you very much. Crikey, what an introduction. Um, I feel like I'm on the red carpet now. Uh, Yeah, thank you very much indeed. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And um, I've got to be completely honest, I was a little bit wary about you bringing up that Gaelic um, hurling article because I can't really remember too much about what we spoke about on the podcast. It was uh, back in a time when we were allowed to meet in person internationally, wasn't it? Um, It was. Hopefully we'll be... uh, We'll be back at the NSCA NetCon uh, next year. Unfortunately, can't travel this year. So things are leaving the UK and travel restrictions are pretty tight right now as we uh, roll out this vaccine program. And I know one of the things I always ask the guests is one of my first questions, even though I kind of did it. We are here in the United States. You are in the UK. And academia in the United States and academia in other countries is a little bit different. So what exactly is a senior lecturer? Um, so people who are listening in America have a clear understanding of this is what I, this is what Chris does, or this is what Dr. Bishop does. 
Yeah, um, and maybe, you know, we'll need to go back and forth on this answer because you might need to correct me potentially. Uh, my interpretation of the sort of lecturer type scale in the US would be there's an assistant professor, an associate professor and a professor or full professor. Correct. I think that's for the most part, yeah. So um, uh, well, it might vary ever so slightly in the UK I think, um, well, how it works at Middlesex at the London Sport Institute, we effectively have six levels. Um, we would have something called a graduate academic assistant, okay, which would typically be someone who's obviously graduated from their degree. Um, it's a full-time employed role and it's predominantly supportive in nature in things like seminars and lab sessions or practical sessions. Then you have an associate lecturer, lecturer, senior lecturer, uh, and associate professor and professor. Okay, so we've just sort of unnecessarily complicated things in the UK. Um, but the professor versus professor is the same. The associate professor versus associate professor is the same. I guess a senior lecturer or lecturer um, is probably comparable to your assistant professor positions in the US, something like that. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I do, um, and I guess that's probably the, the the best comparison I can make to how it works in the states. And I know that very often uh, when you're in our field, you wear some sort of paraphernalia that identifies where you're from. You end up in an elevator, and somebody says, "You know, well, what, what do you do? What do you do, Chris? What do you, what do you tell people? You know, it's, you could say I'm a senior lecturer, and, they're gonna, and you can kind of watch the." Uh, the eyes drop and the snoring start. So somebody, you meet somebody, maybe it may be somebody who's an undergraduate student and they're wondering what you do. They're wondering if they want to get a master's degree. What do you do? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. I guess we typically are just, for anyone who's kind of not in our field, or, or it's a really nice analogy, actually, talking about the elevator scenario, I would just say I teach at a university um, in London and that, you know, the usual follow-up question is then what do you teach in? Um, and <laughs> because I don't assume that, you know, the world knows what the term strength and conditioning means, I kind of just say, oh, you know, I, I usually end up saying something like sporty science because I'm trying to talk about sports science, but I'm trying to somehow a why makes its way onto the end of the word sport, um, which probably makes me sound uh, particularly dumb in that scenario. But um, I just say something like sports science um, or if there are any follow-up questions and they haven't quite fallen asleep yet, I just tell them I, I run a master's degree that um, I guess effectively tries to prepare um, athlete and non-athlete populations to perform the best they can towards some sort of performance-orientated goal. You know, that's a, that's a really easy um, thing to talk about when you talk about just athlete populations. But uh, we were just talking off air, weren't we, about what it means to be a strength and conditioning coach. And it's probably, you know, diversified a little bit um, in the last 20 years or so. So, um, you know, when we when we get our students to conduct case studies of working with their chosen athlete or athletes, really that term is reserved for someone that's got um, a performance orientated goal so they can be like a, a sub elite or semi-professional athlete they don't we're not just expecting people to work with professional sports teams or professional athletes because obviously 
those athletes and those job roles are finite. And I think it's interesting, uh, the longer you're in the field, the longer that sub-competitive level or top-level amateur, especially with master's sports, continues. I had the, the good fortune a few months ago to interview Paul Thompson, who is a elite-level master's runner who is 50-some years old, and he's still winning world championships. And you could say on the one hand, it's like, well, yeah, but he's a master's athlete. But then you look at his running times for 10,000 meters and you look at the times that he's run for the marathon and okay, it's not an Olympics like we may see in Tokyo in a few months, but it's still faster than you typically see when you think of somebody running a marathon which the goal is often just to finish. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the, you know, before I moved full-time into academia, when I was doing a lot more coaching, um, I had a number of those athletes, you know, who were masters level, highly competing athletes. You know, I had a female swimmer um, who was going to the worlds. I had a uh, male hurdler, you know, who was going to the masters championships internationally and, you know, was pushing for gold um, at his age. And then I also had a female canoe athlete who, you know, canoeing is not particularly big in the UK, but as high as it goes at master's level, she was definitely there, you know? So, um, yeah, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. And actually, you know, without, uh, we're just about to go down that first rabbit hole you promised the audience. But, um, you know, when you start considering things like osteopenia and osteoporosis, actually continuing to move and continuing to stay fit and healthy and active as we get older, is more important than uh, than it is for those younger people, really. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about how you got specifically to what this is, but one of the things I really enjoy with Moving to Live is finding out how people started out because I'm sure you didn't wake up, come out of your mother's womb and say, you know, I'm going to end up at a university teaching sporty science. So <laughs> one of the things that we often find with people who are involved in movement fields uh, is either they were really active as a kid, either as a top-level athlete, and at some point they realized, you know, I'm not quite good enough to get to the next level, or maybe they weren't all that active and they got to the university and got the freshman 15 or freshman 30, found out the idea that exercise combined with diet can make a difference, and that kind of started them on their career path. So I guess starting out, were you active as a kid? Were there specific sports? What was your path to figuring out this was the field you wanted to study? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, so I was very active as a kid. Um, I, you know, I have a brother and sister who are older than me who are twins. Neither of them are active at all. So I was the only one in the family who was. Um, and that very much um, sort of follows on from my dad, who was also very active. You know, typically was always, uh, both of us were always in the, you know, the sports teams, the first teams for each sport in school. So, you know, rugby in the first term, soccer in the second term, and then either cricket or athletics in the summer term. Um, but, I, I mean, I made, I played football to a low semi-professional level. Uh, you know, I was never going to go any higher than that. And I didn't even do it for that long, to be honest with you. And for uh, people from America, football, you mean what we call soccer? Is that correct? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, I I actually went to university um, and did an undergrad degree in geography. Um, so, but then I guess I, on reflection, 
probably never had any real serious intent to try and carry forward a career in geography. Uh, and even if I think back to when I was 21, I still now at the age of 39 would have no idea what a career in geography would look like, to be honest with you. Um, I quite enjoyed the degree, but, you know, I was always wanting to be active and move, as you put it. So um, my journey after I graduated was to do what I'm sure lots of people do, was to not use my undergrad degree whatsoever in my uh, my jobs moving forward. <laughs> So I started out as a fitness instructor at a very small gym chain, very small gym company called Spirit Health and Fitness here in the UK, which is typically, not exclusively, but typically a gym chain that's attached onto hotels. So it's it's quite a niche gym uh, company or commercial name. Um, but for that reason, I guess if it's attached onto a hotel primarily, and the one I worked at was, you know, you're your consistent client interaction is rare because, you know, you're attached to a hotel and, you know, guests come and go, obviously. Um, and that meant that there was very minimal consistency and probably much less kind of practically applied work. We always use that term, don't we, in our field um, than I wanted. So I took a very small pay cut um, to work at a much bigger commercial gym chain um, and it was actually at the time, probably, uh, and again, maybe I'm biased, but without question, probably the best gym chain at the time, because they were the only gym chain to have a uh, private contract with uh, the National Academy of Sport Medicine, NASM. So I did all my personal trainer, my performance enhancement specialist, corrective exercise specialist qualifications with them. Um, so once I'd been at the this commercial gym chain for a while. I then did a couple of years um, initially as a consultant in professional soccer. So that was my first proper taste of, of any consistency anyway of working with athletes. And I guess after that, um, it definitely came with some frustrations, um, but it definitely felt like that's where my interest had started to peak, you know, in the last kind of six or so years. But um, the club I was working at went into uh, administration, which happens rarely, but it happened. And so uh, my services were cut and I went to work for a big private healthcare company. And how I explain it is it's, I basically went to work for a company that I guess their model is kind of akin to what Exos is, um, just on a, a much, much smaller scale here in the UK. But I was effectively the, the strength and conditioning slash performance lead. For that company and I really look back on that with immense fondness you know because um, I had some private clients that came with me from my big commercial gym chain because it wasn't too far away this business but actually the performance lead aspect of the role was very much about going out and trying to win contracts you know in I guess that sub elite level and particularly that youth level sport um, and that definitely took some time to build that. Um, lots of rejection, you got to learn how to deal with. But I managed to get um, a couple of big contracts in swimming and um, one medium-sized contract from a private school and a couple of small ones in tennis and track and field. And that was enough to kind of justify my role there. Um, but beyond that, you know, that taught me business skills, which is something that if you're employed as a strength and conditioning coach at a college, at a team, you don't get any of that. 
um, whatsoever. So that was really, really, uh, I, I look upon that, particularly that aspect of doing that role in that company uh, very fondly um, and also getting to work very closely with physiotherapists, you know, a few of which who were kind of duly qualified in strength and conditioning. So there were some real meaningful conversations going back and forth. And I was learning a lot about the remedial side of strength and conditioning, if you like, which I guess is where some of my interest lies and all my research over the years. Um, I guess that kind of takes me from the age of 21 up until about 30. And then I went to study my master's degree um, about the age of 30 at Middlesex, where I am now. Um, and I guess my journey after that is, I think I was, I might have been the only one, or maybe there was one other, I can't remember, on our cohort of master's students that uh, was already, had already done the professional accreditation with the UK Strength and Conditioning Association um, when we were studying our master's. Um, and I worked very closely with Anthony Turner. And he invited one person to come in and kind of do like a lectureship, you know, internship type thing after the master's degree. Now, I was still working, you know, like near enough full time. I'd taken this day off to study for my master's and was working evenings and weekends to get the work done. So I kind of committed to sort of about one, sometimes one and a half days a week down at the university to get some teaching experience. Um, and the roles just kind of evolved into more part-time hours. And then the year after a full-time role came up. Um, and I think a, quite a nice funny story on that is when the full-time role came up, um, I, I was shortlisted out of three. Uh, the role was crudely put probably there for me. And I bombed really bad in the interview. Uh, the university ended up hiring a psychologist for strength and conditioning role. And um, I don't think the strength and conditioning people working at the university at the time were very happy. But two weeks later, they re-advertised for a strength and conditioning lecturer. Astonishingly, I was shortlisted um, after having bombed in the first interview, uh, but learned from my mistakes and got hired. And uh, that's where we are now. It's an interesting story talking with Chris Bishop, an undergraduate degree in geology, and you make career changes, which in the strength and conditioning field and the health and fitness field is not unusual for people to realize after they get fill in your favorite undergraduate degree. It's like, geez, you know, I really don't want to do this. Yeah. Um, and you were fortunate enough from what you described to be in a situation where you had the potential to get some good background experience and good background knowledge through the NASM certifications. What was it uh, at some point or at the age of 30 where most people are probably thinking, I can't go to school, I'm too old. Uh, I'll, say, I'll say that when I was 30, I was in the middle of my doctoral studies and I had a, a good friend of mine who when he was 44 started his doctoral studies. So you're not unique but you are unique when you think of the traditional master student. What was the impetus at the time when you were approaching 30 to say, you know, I think I want to go get my master's and I think I want to get it in this field that I've been working with, working in. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, if you, I guess if you look at, um, it's probably two, is it, you know, a two part answer there. Number one, I guess if you look at job specs at the time and how it worked here in the UK, Things like um, master's degrees were becoming essential criteria rather than desirable. Um, so I guess if I and, and I could be that person that did a full time unpaid internship, 
you know, for free, hoping there was a job at the end of it because, you know, I was 30 and I had a mortgage to pay. So um, I guess it was partly to sort of, if a job came up that I wanted to go for, it was to put me in a, a stronger light, whether that be a lecturing job or a coaching job in the field. Um, but I guess the second part of it is just a sort of very cheesy, if I'm being honest with you, but it's a, it's a sort of continued desire and drive just to to keep learning. You know, I, I, I like to think, uh, it's not meant to sound like a brag in any way, but I like to think that my work ethic is strong. Um, you know, my desire to do that. So um, I guess it was just about, you know, trying to learn more. And actually, I, I probably thought before starting my master's that my underpinning theoretical knowledge was quite strong, but uh, it became very quick, uh, became very aware very quickly on the master's that uh, I still had a lot to learn. But don't we all all the time, I guess. And I'm curious because now you're in an academic position where you direct a master's program and you have an atypical approach to your field because of the undergraduate degree in geology, instead of filling your favorite term, sports medicine, kinesiology, yeah. wh whatever it is, depending on the country. How do you look at students who come to you uh, who are maybe don't have a degree in the air quotes here, if anybody's watching on video, I don't think we're going to post the video, but air quotes in the field, you know, are, are there certain prerequisites for your program or do you look for certain experience is it something where you go by there's just a gut boy they remind me of a, of a young me i think they'll do really well in the field how do you figure that out yeah it's a good question i mean there's probably been about one case where in the past sort of years where they've reminded me of me and i've taken a chance on them and actually it turned out more than fine i guess typical criteria is you know you need to have achieved sort of a a certain degree classification in sports science. Um, you also need that same degree classification if it's a non-related sport degree, but then we're also probably looking for, um, you know, a bit more emphasis on experience in the field if your degree was in, you know, economics or something like that. And actually, you know, as is always the case, it's so context specific and there's pros and cons to all of this because, you know, I've had students in the past who, um, you know, got loads of experience, didn't do great on their undergrad degree, loads of experience. And obviously when they get to the practical components on the master's degree, they fly. But when they have to try and learn stats, you know, they really struggle. And then you've got students who, are worried about finding a placement and fulfilling the assessment requirements for the professional placement module because they've got no coaching experience, but they did an economics degree and they can do the stats blindfolded, you know? So um, it swings and roundabouts, right? And, and I guess that's the point of, um, or in our opinion anyway, having a master's degree that's sort of quite holistic in nature that builds a number of different skill sets rather than being a little bit overly biased to one facet of physical performance. I'm reminded uh, when I was getting my doctoral degree, one of my running partners was an undergraduate degree in airport management. That was what he was majoring in. He, he was actually active duty Navy. And right. he, was, he was very interested and he wanted to take uh, exercise physiology, which I believe was a 400 level course or typically a course for seniors with, you know, the numerous prerequisites, anatomy, physiology, et cetera. And he talked to the, the, 
person who was in charge of this and convinced him. And I still remember those 6 a.m. runs where he would ask me questions and things like that. But because he was interested in it, because it was really pertinent to him, he aced the class. Um, yeah. And it's it's interesting uh, because, you know, I'm still in touch with him 20 some years later and he's still active. So I like to think that the opportunity that he had to take that class maybe kept him active, even though he's still career military. Yeah, that's a very nice story. I like that a lot. Nice. So people get their master's degrees. Sometimes the academic aspect falls into their lap. I'm not saying that is a light thing, because if it falls into your lap, the chances are you were doing things behind the scenes and really working hard to be somebody who would say, boy, this is somebody I want to come into work and see every day. Um, I, I have one friend who in the interview process, that's one of the things that he looks at with the person's experience because it's like, look, do I want to deal with this person every day? <laughs> yeah. uh, but you get you get the master's degree, and from what you're describing, you had more and more opportunities in academia. Was uh, there ever was there ever a moment where you said, you know, I don't really want to leave this practical part so much. Maybe I want to dabble in academia, but still stay as, and I don't say this in a negative way, as coach bishop. Or was there a moment where you realized, boy, I could still do a little bit of that practical stuff, which I know you do, but this academic thing and where I'm influencing and working with other students and being involved literally internationally, that's more where my interests have changed to. Um, yeah, great question. I guess it's a bit of both again. Um, you know, so um, uh, you're right. I actually haven't stopped doing the practical stuff, still dabble about that a little bit. I guess when I was moving into academia, though, you know, full time, um, I was 32. So I'd basically been coaching predominantly full time for about 10, 11 years. You know, so I was kind of uh, I guess if you take that first year at Spirit Health and Fitness away, it's probably 10 years. Um, so I, I guess, you know, I'd kind of felt probably for a while when I went to study the MSc um, that actually, I, I don't want to be coaching full-time in another five or 10 years' time. And actually, you know, you could ask Anthony Turner that because I went to the open evening to study the MSc in 2011, something like that. Um, my first question to Anthony was, do people study this master's to get into lecturing? And he went, oh, um, not really, but we have people who studied the course who now work here. Whether they set out to do that is another matter. Um, so I'd already kind of made the decision that I wanted to move into academia because I'd done, you know, 10 years of coaching, was starting to feel it was maybe just a bit too monotonous for me. Um, and again, just a personal preference. The other thing as well is obviously before becoming employed in that big healthcare company, I was taken on sort of under a self-employed banner. So I'd had to almost work for myself, have my own small business. Um, and I'd experienced, you know, the challenges of that. And uh, as I was kind of getting older and probably a bit influenced by my father and the way he worked all his life for one company, I, I was probably, you know, starting to think that things like stability, um, you know, in job and finance were growing in importance, you know, stuff like that. Very sad at the age of 32, really, isn't it? But um, that's kind of where my head was at. And so, um, but there's probably another answer to that question, which was, 
there's always been a strong desire to try and, um, you know, just build my own profile for, uh, selfishly, you know, for the, for the industry. And I basically felt in the UK at the time, there were two ways to do it. Number one was, you know, you become known as a fantastic expert practitioner or coach, but because I was doing a master's degree, which was now becoming essential, not desirable at the age of 30, the only way I could do that is to probably give up lots of free time and hope there was a job at the end of it. And of course, that job would start at the bottom and I'd have to build up, which is nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying at the age of 31, 32, it's harder to do that than at the age of 21. I then thought, if that's not my route, how do you you know, build your profile in the world of strength and conditioning? And I thought one of the best ways you could do that was write lots of research. Um, and you know, you get known for research in a certain area. And I guess if you do it well enough, you, you know, get called upon from almost like on a consultancy basis. Um, so again, quite sadly, when I went to sort of study my master's degree, um, I'd already decided on route two out of those two options. Um, and it's kind of what I've been working towards ever since, uh, really, you know, just to try and put out good information, disseminate good information, really practically applied information that's hopefully helpful. Um, and uh, yeah, still obviously haven't got anywhere near to mastering that. So just working on delivering that every day, really. <laughs> I'm curious when you were starting towards that master's path, I know talking to people who maybe have been practitioners full-time and have transitioned into the academia. I mean, there are obviously positives and negatives of all of them, but mo of, of both sides. But one of the things I think most of the people who are in academia, especially as they get a little older, and you, you hit that 32 and that seems to be 30 to 35 where you realize, oh, I have to grow up. You maybe are working just as hard, but did you have some sense that maybe if I'm in academia, I have a little bit more flexibility because if I'm uh, more on the practitioner side, you know, there, if I'm working with uh, football teams, there are certain times where I'm going to have to work with them. And that's kind of under the control of the coach. Whereas if you've got a big research project, you can say, this is when we're collecting data, or I have this paper due, but I, I have the flexibility. I can write from 6 p.m. to midnight if I want to do something else at 6, 6 a.m. to noon. Yeah, I, do you know what? I honestly don't think I knew enough about the system to uh, know the answer to that then. I just figured, you know, basically I went to my open evening, said I wanted to get into lecturing rather than go out and be a coach because I'd already been doing that for 10 years. Um, and my piece of advice at the open evening was uh, from Anthony, believe it or not, uh, go away and pay for NSCA membership and get access to JSCR and SCJ. Uh, do some reading. And then he didn't offer me a place straight away either. I basically filled the application to study the master's there and then uh, in the big quad building at Middlesex where I walked through, you know, every other day. And, uh, and then, I don't know, a month later, we had a phone call. And soon after the phone call, he invited me in for an interview. And the first thing he said, I guess he was trying to figure out how serious I was, you know, and he kind of just said the first thing on the interview, he goes, what have you done since the last time I spoke to you? And I went, I've paid for NSCA membership. And I've been reading up about, you know, articles in JSCR and SCJ. And there and then um, I delivered what I thought at the time was a really, really good idea for a dissertation, even though I hadn't even enrolled. 
for the master's degree. And uh, of course, he quickly told me how crap that was. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> so I, I think anybody who, who does a doctoral degree realizes that I entered my doctoral program with three, three ideas, potential ideas. Two of them were shot down within the first three hours. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, third absolutely. one took quite a bit of modification, et cetera. It's it's amazing as you learn more, you realize how little you learn. Absolutely, that's the uh, Dunning Kruger effect, isn't it? It um, is. As so you learn, you realize you know less. One of the things that I enjoy about the NSCA, I know you and I have chatted about this before, is there's always opportunities for people to find their place, and it seems I don't know if that's because of the organization or because some of the members are always willing to contrib contribute time. It's very obvious from you as a, not saying this in a negative way, but you are now in essence, a younger middle-aged professional. Um, yeah. I'm 53, so I'm older than you, so I can say that. Uh, what is it? It's very obvious when you see what you do, when you publish articles, there's numerous people involved with that. You collaborate from different schools. When you see things with your posts on Twitter, you're you're always reposting other things. What was it? Was this part of your master's degree that gave you this insight to say, look, you get more, for lack of a better term, you catch more flies with honey than, than with, with salt? Because I'm not saying you're laying down and doing this, but you're always very positive and not just, as you said, you, one of your goals is obviously is to promote yourself as a, as a career and as, as a path, but you also are clearly promoting other people with your work with the NSA, with your work with the Strength and Conditioning Association in the UK. What was the impetus or how did you realize this is a good thing to do or this is a productive thing to do? Yeah, I, truthfully, I, this is quite a simple one, really. I, I guess this probably comes... Um, you know, more from Anthony, direct, Anthony's direct involvement with me. You know, I, um, I mean, crudely put, you know, Anthony won uh, the contract for British fencing um, a number of years ago. And so a lot of his hours at the university got bought out by the need to be doing work with British fencing every day, even though he was still a Middlesex University employee. So the reason the role for a strength and conditioning lecture even came about is because, you know, hours needed to be filled at the university that used to be done by Anthony. And so I've always, you know, he taught me my master's as well. And I've, you know, taken over the master's that he used to run over the last sort of six years or so. Um, I guess it's always been this, he's always had a philosophy of, bringing others in and, you know, really, really formulating teamwork and many hands make light work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that can stem across, you know, grants, writing articles, data collection, um, preparing lectures, um, you know, internal professional development of junior or early career staff. It spans across everything, really. So I guess this kind of, I, I, I'm not saying I wouldn't have, you know, reach that journey myself, but it definitely would have taken me longer um, had I not had kind of Anthony's mentorship. Um, and really it was about, you know, just acknowledging that not much bad comes from collaboration, you know, and I guess I'm sort of talking a little bit in swirls here. So if I give a little bit more of a concrete example, which would be if you write a research paper, um, you know, I've just actually submitted a paper yesterday to SCJ um, and it's uh, it's a nice kind of international collaboration um, with 
Matt Jordan, um, with Iranula Turco from Brazil, with Paul Comfort from here in the UK, but works, you know, three hours away from us and Anthony, um, and John Harry from Texas Tech University, you know, and it's a paper about uh, trying to offer practitioners a framework for understanding how to select metrics during the counter movement and drop jump tests when you test on force plates, because, you know, things like, uh, I will get back to the question in a minute, I promise. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you take something like force decks, force decks spits out 150 metrics. That's almost more confusing than just measuring jump performance with an app now. You know, how does, how does anyone know what to select? So really, I saw no, no bad thing in inviting people like John Harry, Paul Comfort, Matt Jordan to help read this article and, you know, tell me what I was missing. And effectively, this is, this is peer review without the official peer review process, isn't it? Um, so that's one specific example of how I think collaboration makes our work stronger. Um, and again, that's just one particular context, but really it applies to everything. And, and I think the other part of that answer, which is, again, a, a little bit different, would be, you know, our professions really have been for many years quite angry about how saturated it is, you know, um, and these un all these unpaid internship opportunities that happen in the UK and America, you know, they're everywhere. Um, everyone's really angry. And, and actually, I, I think we see what happens when, you know, everyone's a bit too riled up, a bit too emotionally invested and involved, a bit angry about things. Nothing really good comes of that. You know, we're all, I don't want, I don't want to be a person and I don't think any of us should try and be part of the problem. I think we should always try and be part of the solution, you know, as best we can. Um, so I guess that's where the trying to help people, lift people up, be collaborative all comes into it, in my opinion. I guess other people might see it slightly differently, but um, in reality, I think that, you know, when you go on social media, we were talking about this off air, weren't we? And you see, everyone just bitching and bitching. I, I, I just can't imagine lawyers having those bitching, slanging matches on Twitter, you know. I think we must look like quite an, you know, amateur and young and a bit immature profession in that regard, if anyone ever came across it. And that's never really been my MO. I certainly try not to make it to be. And, and actually, when my, my role as chair of the board for UKSCA, you know, I've had plenty of practice of trying to give very diplomatic answers <laughs> to people giving me grief. And that's, that's really a, something probably looking back. It's a 39-year-old Chris. If you could look back at 22-year-old Chris and say, boy, I really could have learned how to be diplomatic because it really is a skill to explain to people or make people understand when, as they said, they want to yell and you just want to make sure that this is the information that they need. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I wouldn't have understood at 22 that, you know, being silent or killing someone with kindness is a more effective strategy. I, I would not have understood that. You know, I would have thought my only option here is to attack. Um, but actually, I also wouldn't have been able to understand that if someone's aggressive and you're not, it's, you know, actually, they probably look stupid, not you. You know, I, I wouldn't have got that at 22. Um, and probably still learning that now, <laughs> to be brutally honest. So, uh, but you're right, it's a skill. It takes time to learn and figure out, you know, when to uh, say the right thing and when not to. 
We've been talking with Chris Bishop. He is a senior lecturer in the UK. I think probably the highlight or the big take-home message that he's described literally in the last five minutes without realizing it or recognizing it is he's described what a professional is as far as how you should act. And I think that's valuable information, whatever the profession is. Chris, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, whether it's just in passing at a conference or when you agree to be interviewed on a podcast, either for the Strength and Conditioning Journal or for my own personal podcast. I'm looking forward to the next time we can get together and actually talk in person, hopefully next year. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait. I was, um, I think, like I said earlier, very, uh, I stood next to no chance of getting over to the uh, national conference this year, unfortunately, from the UK. Um, but uh, we're certainly uh, striving and hoping to make it in 2022. I've actually had both of my vaccines. Um, so, you know, in theory, I'm as, about as protected as I can be. Um, so we certainly hope that, you know, we'll be able to make it in 2022. Fingers crossed. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live wherever you find podcasts or on our website, www.moving2live.com. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live and check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, F-I-T-L-A-B-P-G-H.com, which focuses on people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority because movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. Until next time, keep on moving.